I think that is one of the most important points to drive home to parents. Absolutely. Because we know most bites happen under parental supervision. Right. Because it's that passive supervision. Active supervision is absolutely key. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 5 of Dog Lab. This is Brian Burton. We have an amazing pair of guests today to discuss a super important topic, especially given the current COVID-19 lockdown, dog and kid safety. Both of our guests are highly recognized in their field on this subject, and this conversation was super fun and enlightening. I strongly recommend listening to the whole thing if dog and kid safety is something important to you right now or will be in the future. Dr. Emily Levine is a veterinary behaviorist and the owner of Animal Behavior Clinic of New Jersey and VP of Veterinary Behavior at Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. She did her behavior residency at the Cornell University Hospital for Animals. After completing her residency, Dr. Levine moved to England, where she ran the behavior clinic at the University of Lincoln and has since been practicing veterinary behavior for over 13 years. She has authored several papers and peer-reviewed journals and textbooks, as well as co-edited international proceedings on behavior research. Her new children's book, titled Doggy Do's and Don'ts, will be available in the next few weeks on Amazon in ebook, softcover, and hardcover formats. Contact her at Animal Behavior Clinic NJ. That's for New Jersey, so Animal Behavior Clinic NJ, if you'd like to be notified on when the book comes out. Helen St. Pierre is the owner and operator of No Monkey Business Dog Training. Based in Concord, New Hampshire, Helen has been training dogs for over 17 years and is widely recognized in her industry as an expert on the interaction of dogs and kids. She is a certified member of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and is also a licensed dog and storks and dogs and toddlers presenter with Family Paws. Helen teaches class locally in Concord, New Hampshire area and offers workshops and seminars on a variety of subjects all around New England. She also offers virtual lessons and consults as well, and she has been featured in the radio, in print, and on TV for her work. So here is Dr. Emily Levine and Helen St. Pierre. Dr. Emily Levine and Helen St. Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So happy to be here. Yes, and and especially thank you both uh, for joining in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, This episode about dogs and kids is, in my opinion, even more relevant during these times with, you know, kids being home from school and all the social distancing measures uh, currently in place all across the world right now. Um, And then it's particularly well-timed for your upcoming release of your new book, Doggy Do's and Don'ts, um, Dr. Levine, um, which is super cute and awesome. And I encourage everyone to to get a copy of that. And we'll we'll talk more about that later and and have how you can get that in the notes. Um, But before we jump in, um, I'm curious where you're both spending your your time in lockdown. So maybe we'll start with you first, Helen. Uh, where, where, Where are you spending your time? I'm in my house with two children. Um, so I have a, I have a nine-year-old and I have a two-year-old um, who is napping right now. Please, God, let her stay down for a, while we do this. Um, if not, she'll be a great entertainer. Um, and I have, I'm in my house with my eight. I have seven dogs, but I have eight dogs with me because I have a board and train as well. And my four cats and my two parrots. So wow. I'm basically, I'm very entertained. Um, but uh, but I, it's kind of like Groundhog Day every single day here. 
um, and so, still fielding calls and teaching classes online and uh, doing my Zoom consults. But yeah, it, I'm just at my house. So boredom is not a problem for you at this point? No, no. But Groundhog Day syndrome is. Yeah. There's only yeah, so enough. many Peppa Pig episodes that you can watch before you really do start to <laughs> feel like you're going off the deep end a little bit. <laughs> uh, how about you, Emily? Yes, I'm at home as well uh, with my husband and daughter and dog and cat. And, you know, the good news is this is just confirmed we all love each other. We're not driving each other crazy. <laughs> so that is excellent. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's really good. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, so so let's jump in. Um, so I'm kind of curious um, because I did a proper introduction to both of you before we started here. Uh, dogs and kids is a passion for both of you, so I'm kind of curious about why this topic is is so important to you both. Um, you know, especially given all of the different topics out there that that could be chosen to sort of champion. So I'm just kind of curious, maybe we'll start with you first on this one, Emily, just sort of what made you get into wanting to to write the book and be passionate about, you know, dogs and kids and, and safety? Yeah, that's a good question. It really came from with my own experience with my daughter when she was two. Uh, wanting to teach her uh, how to be safe around dogs. And a lot of the books that you read to kids at those times were not teaching safe ways to be around dog and and not teaching respect and all that good stuff of, of kids towards the dog. So it started off with just wanting to teach my daughter how to be around dogs. And that combined with the number of cases that I see at work where there were all these bites to children and putting families in very difficult situations when it was so super preventable. So many of these dog bites to kids, normal dogs, are just preventable if we just had some basic safety information out there. And I feel like we can just make such a huge difference and reduce the number of bites just by trying to disseminate more safety culture information around dogs and kids? Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of a similar situation. I've been working with um, dog and child safety and bite prevention for over a decade at this point. Uh, it started prior to my first um, daughter, Grace, who's now nine, uh, going to be 10 in July, before she was born. Um, it was actually, I just was interested in expanding more niches that I could fill outside of just family dog training. And I was noticing that in a lot of my classes, there were children involved and kids like that. And I just wanted to, to learn more. So I uh, became a member of Family Paws of Jen Shryock um, and her oh, phenomenal organization. And um, through talking to Jen and, and combining a lot of information on her dogs and storks and prepping for dog and baby safety, um, prior to the baby being born and doing all of those work, I actually ended up becoming the assistant director of Family Paws for a few years with Jen and um, really trying our best to spearhead proactive um, work with dogs and kids versus reactive dogs and kids. So one of the biggest problems that I've seen in my career is that the hysterical phone calls or the cases that I see are 
after something pretty traumatic has happened. And um, the, the fear and the blame and the judgment that's passed and really wanting to get ahead of that curve instead of being feeling like I'm constantly trying to chase behind it. And um, it's really become something that I've become known for in the community. I, I absolutely love doing it. Now that I have a two-year-old and a nine-year-old, I'm able to live it and therefore give my clients um, great examples of what I'm doing at my house. And um, it's worked to a point now where I'm really working with even like our local hospitals where I'm communicating with the emergency room department because things that we found is kids go to uh, the hospital for a dog bite, and they're basically just sent home without any resources or information. And I'm working right now with our local um, hospitals and community departments, but trying to get there to be information for these parents, even after they leave this kind of stuff. It's So it's been a long journey for me. And it's something that I really, really am passionate um, about. It's not all I do. But when I do it, I really throw my heart and soul into it. Yeah, and I think Emily, I think that and, and it's such a good good point that that you bring up like reaching out to, you know, like the, you know, the, the fact that you have relationships with emergency places or pediatrician offices. Um, and I think Emily, I think you've been reaching out um, to, to some pediatricians as well and kind of hoping to get some, um, some, some traction there. And I think the reason why both of you are doing that is because yeah, the, the, the calls that we get as well when something bad has happened, it's um, those can be really tough calls. Uh, and, and and this isn't to discourage anyone if they're in a bad situation or something has bad to call and get help because you should do that. But I think one of the key things is I think parents have a spidey sense when things don't feel right. And if your spidey senses are tingling, you should definitely reach out to someone like a professional ASAP, um, because usually you know if something if, if something's a little off, and then hopefully with things like this book or body language or different resources that we'll have, and I'm sure I'll have some I'll posted for you, Helen, in the notes as well. Um, you know, the more you know, people can learn about body language and how to prevent these things. Um, that's really where where the focus has to be. And like you said, Emily, the the prevention on this stuff a lot of times isn't super difficult, but it's it's it can be really um, really impactful um, if, if we get ahead of it. Well, we're up against media as well, Brian. I mean, that's part of the problem is these parents, a lot of these parents that are dealing with this stuff is they're being shown images. Or you can scroll through your own Facebook um, account and you can see images of kids laying on dogs, par um, kids hu hugging dogs. You know, we all have seen that stuff. And um, so even if they've got that spidey sense, they may not, it's been numbed over a lot of media image that, that we're thrown at. I mean, there was a Amazon um, commercial, I don't know if you guys remember this, where the the little girl is scared of the dog, but she loves her lion. And so the parents get the dog a lion wig and they put the lion wig on the dog and the little girl at the end of the commercial hugs the dog. <laughs> and I'm watching the commercial just like wanting to cry. Um, and my husband's like, what is the matter with you? I'm like, this is what I'm up against. You know, I mean, this is what's numbing that normal spidey sense of saying, you know, it, should I let my kid be doing that? So that's what's also hard for, for us in this profession is going against teaching um, parents to be proactive, but also fighting against those images in that media that's putting this stuff out there. That's a great point. And there actually is an organization called dogc.org that has a 
movement called put the camera down. Yeah. Because uh, all you have to do, you know, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, tons of really scary videos where I think while there are some very savvy dog owners who may know what to do, there are some dog guardians owners who have the spidey sense. And then there are just people who just don't know. And that's okay to not know that that's part of why we want to get information out there in the hands of parents. So they, they are armed with the power of knowledge so that they can remain vaccinated against all this bad stuff <laughs> yeah. that's out there. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think that, and, and, but you, the, and I'm, I know you've certainly dealt with this too, um, Emily, is that, that, you know, you can put all this stuff out there, but then you have clients or parents that say, oh, well, I grew up with dogs and mm -hmm. I was, my kids uh, are going to be just like my dog or my mm -hmm. dog is this kind of dog and therefore is fine. And that's the the hard part too, is that when you have the media still showing that and you have these old older um, ideals that these people have grown up with, um, and then it's unfortunately, as you know, it's only after an event has happened that they're willing to then open and take take the, the change and take some of that advice. Um, but to be said, my my biggest thing that I have seen is when I have a client that's gone through something difficult after I'm educating them, they then go on and they educate at least 10 more people that they know. So those people that maybe are reactive rather than proactive, then once I've gotten through to them, they are helping educate people. And I think that that's been a really big movement in our industry is some of the people that have experienced the worst possible thing, a bite to their child or even worse, they are then educating and helping people before something bad happens. Absolutely. And this crosses many fields and may be quite pertinent to the time and history where we are now. But there's research that actually demonstrates having owned a dog before does not mean you can interpret their body language right. appropriately. So if we can use the science and then do what we can on the prevention side to be proactive and to educate parents and children from the get-go, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, we just need to use the science and then we have to as frustrating as it can be, just keep plugging away, trying to get the information out there in the hands of parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's and what's interesting about that study, and I'll I'll put a link out to it. Is um, I actually know which study you, you referenced, Emily. And there, there's a couple around that because I actually did a uh, a research project on something similar. And what was interesting was pet owners are just as accurate as professionals at identifying positive body language with a dog. So if they're happy those types of things, they tend to be much better at that. And there was no significant difference with professionals, but there was a real, there was a significant difference in identifying like the subtle signs of fear um, or anxiety um, or the types of things that we see before an aggressive episode happens. So, um, so for people listening out there, it doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean you're not good at reading your dog's body language, but there's probably, there's probably some room there for improvement on the, the, the more subtle stuff um, in terms of uh, the more negative um, emotions. So, um, so I think that that's something that was that that has been reproduced in multiple studies. So I think that's something everyone can uh, can take to heart, and that's what the book and these different resources are for. Um, and I also think too, what's neat about it is the it's really 
like the, the, the changes, it doesn't mean like we don't, it's not like we don't want the kids interacting with dogs. It doesn't mean that right. we, that we're telling families to not have dogs. Right. So I know we're about to go into, into some pretty deep stuff. That's going to sound like a bit of a bummer, but it's just to kind of have a real conversation about some of the risks out there. Um, but, you know, ha having dogs and kids can be a, a really great thing. It's just more of like we can teach kids how to interact with with dogs in a more appropriate way. So it's more enjoyable for, for the dog and safer for the humans. Oh, absolutely. And I think, Brian, when you're talking about people unable to read some of the negative body languages with their dogs, I see that all the time when I'm going through pictures or videos with clients specifically in relation with their dog and their child involved. Um, even when I do my presentations at the hospitals and I'm showing a picture of a dog and a baby together and, oh, everyone goes, oh my God, it's so cute. And then you crop the baby out. And when you take the baby out and you look just at the dog, you're able to read it very differently. Now, this mm -hmm. is pictures of dogs and babies where it's not your child. It's not your baby and it's not your dog. We take um, out the equation of the emotional and massive emotional connection that you have to both of these creatures. But once you crop the child out of a lot of these pictures, you would be amazed at how fast people go, oh yeah, that dog looks really miserable. When you take and you put the child in, it's like, oh, it's so cute, the baby's smiling, right? Um, and that is one of the big things that I've seen in, in families when we're looking back at pictures, even in myself before, you know, before I really, really was watching for this, I look back at some of the pictures of my daughter, who was a baby with my one of my dogs laying in the room. And they're not touching or anything, but I can tell my dog is like, please stop her from screaming. But I'm just so happy that they look so cute together in the same room. You know, that emotional connection that we that we have, we can't discount that when we're trying to coach some of these parents because it's, it's there um, and they're not doing it on purpose. Yeah, cool. Do you have anything else to add to that, Emily? No, not at all. All right, cool. So... Um, so I did some research prior to this and the, the center for disease control states that children are more likely than adults to be bitten by a dog. And I was bitten as a dog by a kid as well in my face and require stitches. So, um, you know, I, I was one of those, uh, statistics, um, and when they are bitten, the injuries can be more severe and over half of dog bite injuries occur at home, uh, with dogs that are familiar to us. And having a dog in the household is linked to a higher likelihood of being bitten uh, than not having a dog. And then finally, as the number of dogs in the home increases, so does the likelihood of being bitten. So, you know, in, in your practice, sort of like how, like in your practice, Emily, and then in, in your training business, um, Helen, sort of like how how prevalent are these issues with with dogs and children? And why do you think children are, are more at risk? So I think I kind of like to get at the the why is this it like why are kids more at risk and i think understanding that why can can help sort of parents understand why it's important to sort of maybe uh, to really take a look at this and maybe make some adjustments um so i think to get a picture of how common this is i will refer to a study that was done looking at people going in and interviewing families. And when the adults were interviewed, they found that 20% by their reports were bitten by their family dog. But when the children were interviewed, that number went up to 50%. 
So it was like half of households. And I, my guess is that's even underreported. Mm, And I suspect most people will reach out to a hopefully qualified trainer like Helen. So I imagine the qualified trainers out there are seeing a higher number than I am. And even with that, um, I see many situations where families are torn apart. What do we do? We thought I loved our dog, et cetera. I can't give an exact percentage um, because I don't keep those sort of tabs. But it's a very, very common problem. And the why children are bitten, there are various um, reasons for that that we currently know. And one simply has to do with the behaviors of children. Um, You know, kids go through different phases. And, you know, some phases that they go through are the testing phase. Like you say, don't bother the dog while resting and they'll do it while looking at you, you know, just to test you. They may mimic their parents. If they see parents hugging or kissing a dog, they want to mimic what they see. Kids also, um, the studies have shown, just do not recognize, especially the more subtle signs of aggression or even the snarling and teeth showing. They misinterpret that as being friendly. So it would be once we have the knowledge that kids cannot accurately, and these studies were done with mostly like seven-year-olds and down, they cannot accurately interpret how a dog is feeling as a parent, that should really heighten your sensitivity to, I have to really watch for my child and try and teach my child. So kids will all just naturally, just because they're normal kids, if a dog is resting, they're going to crawl towards the dog. They're going to try and interact with the dog when the dog is minding his or her own business. And although many humans see that as not being provocative, the dog certainly sees it as provocative. And most dogs have given many subtle cues saying, please stop, please don't do this, please stop. But because kids can't interpret those, and sometimes the parents can't either if they don't know, boom, bite. And because kids are so small, a lot of bites happen to the face and neck area. And they also happen to the face and neck area because certain age children have a behavior of leaning in or an intrusive facial investigation behavior. And they do that with novel objects and with small creepy crawly things. So they will lean in very close. And a lot of dogs just don't like that. They don't wanna be bothered. And I should say for the listeners and, and, and I, I, we're talking today about just normal dogs. We're not talking about dogs that have incredible anxiety disorders or hyperarousal issues or severe aggression issues. These are just your typical normal dogs who have emotions and have likes and dislikes and are communicating that in a very, very normal, appropriate way. And it doesn't mean your dog is bad and it doesn't mean your kid is bad. We just have to objectively look at what we can expect from a kid and a dog and be smart about it. Just like when we're teaching kids not to look both ways when crossing a street. It's just basic safety information that we need to instill. I I completely agree. I mean, the big thing too, when you're talking about children, and I I say this even when I'm talking to my clients about socializing their puppies, you know, people will say, okay, my, my dog needs to meet all different kinds of people. I say, well, break down people for me. Okay. Men, women, and children. Okay. Break down men for me. All right. Well, we've got short men, tall men, men with beards, men with hats, men with canes, men in wheelchairs. Same thing with women, maybe without the beards. But then we deal with 
children. And children, you break that down into multiple age groups. You're talking about infants. So, you know, infants up until three months of age are very different from three to six months of age. Then we deal with six months of age to nine months of age, then nine months to about a year, then a year to 18 months. And then after an 18 months, you're kind of around there until about two and a half, maybe three years old. Then we're dealing with three to five, five to seven, seven to nine. And then we're in preteens and then we're in teenagers. So children can be broken down into all of these different categories and the risk level that each category can um, present to dogs. When we're talking about, you know, um, even from three to six months of age, I deal with a lot of dogs that you know, we're doing tummy time. The baby is on a ba- on a mat and is hanging out with the family and the family dog is laying right next to the mat as they do. They want to be a part of the thing, the things that we're doing with our dogs and our kids and family. And the baby will roll. The baby just automatically is going through these reflexes will roll and may roll by accident onto the dog. And the dog may growl or startle or get up and leave. And so there's so many different periods of risk just in children developing that doesn't even involve necessarily even the what um, Emily is talking about where we're getting into the provocative side. It can be, you know, some of the bites that I've seen have been completely non-provocative, but dealing with things like grumble zones and growl zones where a dog is lying on the couch and the baby is crawling and goes to pull up on something and pulls up onto the sofa and just without even knowing, you know, we're talking about a 12 month old an 18 month old, just pulling up and having all of a sudden their face right in the dog's face and the dog interpreting that as incredibly rude. So there's all these different um, age levels and all these different categories when you're talking about child and dog safety, um, because it's not just black and white. There are so many different areas that we have to explore. And that's why it's also so important to have um, a support system for these families where, you know, we're supporting them from before the baby comes home. Let's prep for the baby. Then those first three months when baby is home. And now what we've got a baby that's actually noticing the dog. Now, what do we start talking about in terms of language? Now that we've got a baby that's mobile, now that we have a baby that's running, <laughs> now that we have a baby that's screaming and no longer napping like my life, you know, and how we help the dogs through those transitional periods. Because what happens is as soon as the babe, the dog adjusts to one form, the child grows up and, you know, the dog's like, okay, I've gotten used to it sitting up and staring at me at eye level now. I think I can live with this. And now suddenly the baby's moving and now it's walking. <laughs> and uh, I feel so bad for dogs because you can't sit down with them and be like, I'm sorry, this is going to happen for the rest of your life now. You better get used to it. Um, but you just have to help them adjust through each and every stage. Yeah. Um, and then what, what, what would you guys say? You know, this is obviously in Emily's book and some of the resources we're going to put out. But if we had to hit on like, you know, two or three sort of behaviors that are in that subtle category where um, where we all see it, you know, things like things that you could notice in your dog that maybe the average person won't notice, but might be an indicator that your dog isn't feeling good. Like what are sort of the the top two or three, because there are many, um, we're not going to be able to cover all of them here, but the top two or three that are sort of 
yeah, like you should really watch out for, for these behaviors. And once you start noticing them, the cool thing about it is you can't really turn it off. So once somebody, I, I find points these things out to you, it's, uh, it's pretty much stuck and you can't unsee it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like what, like what are two, two or three sort of subtle behaviors that might indicate your dog is not feeling too cool with the situation? Uh, so um, turning their head away, like just trying to say, please stop. They're just going to simply turn their head. That's a huge indicator. Lip licking. Hey, I'm uncomfortable. Please stop. Those are two very, very common ones. Um, and I would also say just sort of a, maybe a more a stiff might be too strong of a word. A little more of a, I'm going to sort of freeze my position right here in my body while I turn my head away. I would say those are three that are pretty clear, polite messages that are screaming, please stop. Yeah, I, I agree with those. I also see a lot of dogs uh, do some check-in eye contact with the adult in the room uh, where the dog will look at the mom, um, you know, from across the room as the kid's coming towards the dog, like, anybody? Is someone going to step in here? I remember um, looking at my husband like that when my daughter was certain <laughs> ages. Like, <laughs> I might snap. Could someone please help me? You know, and parents miss that. They think it's like, oh, good job. And they, you know, mm -hmm. um, whereas what I recommend when you see that is help your dog, direct them. Like, it's okay for you to leave. You can go to your spot. I've got your back. So that's one that I definitely see. Kissing the baby obsessively in the face, especially if the baby is crawling over to the dog, we call this the kiss to dismiss. So we we see dogs, the baby will crawl over to the dog and the we see people film this all the time. The dog is licking the, the baby incessantly. And what the dog's actually asking for is the baby to turn away and move away. So we call that the kiss to dismiss. And we see that a lot. And once I recommend to parents, like watch for that and they start going, Oh my God, I thought he just liked the peanut butter that he had just eaten. He's actually asking him for a little bit of space in a polite way. Um, but yeah, those two are, are the kind of the add-ons to Emily that I would say are very easy to spot, you know, little subtle signs that your dog is probably asking you for some help. Obviously yeah. getting up and moving away too. I mean, that's one that we all see all the time, getting up, moving away. Even if they don't move away out of the room, you know, the dog might get up and just walk over to you and simply is saying, can you, can you help me out here? So those are big ones yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. Um, and I think what's nice about those, they're not super, uh, yeah, they're not super complicated, but man, they are they're like, once you see them, you can't unsee them and they can be mm -hmm. really powerful. And just like my dog needs some space or some, some alone time right now. And I think, you know, anytime you need to just sort of separate them and that's where like gates and X pens and different things can come in handy. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, yeah, those are all really, really good things. Um, so, so sort of given the risk, some may wonder why bother having a dog in a home <laughs> with a kid at all. Um, so I want to make sure that we're, you know, talking about the benefits of this. Um, but I, I, I did do a quick literature review just about uh, dogs and the benefits with kids. And I know that uh, uh, Pure Wall in 2016 did a literature review of 20, 22 uh, papers and 
found evidence for an association between a wide range of emotional health benefits from from childhood pet ownership, particularly self-esteem and loneliness. Um, and also there's an association between pet ownership and educational and cognitive benefits. Um, so for example, in perspective taking abilities and intellectual development. Um, so I thought that was was pretty cool. So sort of in conjunction to our anecdotal evidence that you know having having a dog around kids can be can, can be really cool. Um, I'm just wondering, have you both also seen um, seen this in your work? And do you think the the pros outweigh the risks? Uh, wow. So lots of answers to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it depends is going to be a common theme. Yes, always <laughs> it depends. Depends. Yep. But I would say. First and foremost, there are lots of pros for having a dog uh, <laughs> um, with, you know, kids feeling they have a friend or certain cognitive and emotional development or decreasing anxiety. So, so those are pros. The cons of having a dog, I think, at least where my brain typically goes, is that when parents attempt to get a dog for the purpose of teaching the child responsibility. The intent is I'm going to get a dog and you have to walk it, you have to feed it, you have to do everything. And the parents genuinely think this is going to be successful and that they are not going to have to do it. And then when they realize, oops, it really is going to fall on me, then oftentimes if they themselves didn't really want the dog, the dog will end up uh, in a shelter somewhere. So we know from, uh, again, from some studies that getting a pet to teach a child responsibility doesn't work. It's not going to teach them anything and the dog ends up sort of going away. Now that's different than a family who wants to get a dog and, and wants to, you know, involve the child in some uh, safe way uh, with the dog. But that's just the one big con, or I would say, if you really don't want a dog and you think it's going to help teach your kid responsibility, probably shouldn't do it. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that as well. I think um, you know the it's kind of going down the same road where when you people get another dog for their other dog, you know, they're like, oh, I want to get another dog to keep my other dog company, or I'm going to get two puppies at once so they keep each other company. And you're like, no, no, get another dog because you want another dog. Um, I think the con, uh, the pros of children and dogs living together, uh, personally and professionally are, are pretty endless. I mean, I could go on and on empathy and compassion and um, especially my daughter, Grace, was an only child for seven years, but she wasn't an only child because we had dogs. And, you know, instead of me being able to revolve around her, she was able to watch, well, I can't get this right now because mom's taking care of the dogs. And I have to do this right now because the dogs need this. And just being able to learn even just simple things like sharing or waiting your turn when there's pets, just it doesn't have to be dogs necessarily, just pets. But Empathy is huge. Um, you know, I am, we are constantly in our home uh, fostering dogs um, and rescuing dogs, whether we adopt them after we foster them. We are a huge proponent of rescuing and fostering senior dogs. So we have a 13 and a half year old senior pit bull here named Sarge. And um, every year we usually, he will, he'll pass. He's 13 and a half. He's probably got about six months. Then we get another senior dog in. And just having the kids learn about that sort of, not the idea of life and death and breeding dogs in your home and all of that, but 
empathy and compassion is, I think, one of the biggest things. Also, just a part, quite frankly, some of the, the hygiene stuff, you know, it's okay to have dirt around. It's okay for there to be a little bit of dog hair. It's, you know, just some of that stuff for me is, is huge for my kids. You know, yeah, it's okay. Somebody had an accident on the floor. Let's clean it. You know, just little things like that, that really build um, some strength in, in with kids. And I've seen the same thing in my, um, my daily work with families. I especially see it with the families that I'm working on for children that have emotional, um, uh, issues or children that need service dogs, and we get a dog for them, um, children with special needs, um, I see a huge benefit. So the pros to me far outweigh the cons. The cons are usually what Emily was saying is just doing it for the child, expecting the child to be all on board, or also doing it as a form of entertainment for the kids. We'll get a dog so that the kids will have stuff to do or things to do. And the, the other main con that I see is the idea that when you get a puppy with kids, that you're going to have this like Norman Rockwell painting of these kids outside in the yard playing happily with the lab puppy. And what it actually looks like is the kid ripping the, or the, the puppy ripping the hat off the child while he's trying to go down the slope sledding. And the family is like, why can't we all be together all the time? The puppy's crazy. The kids are crazy. And and showing them that like you, it's actually not going to look like that for a while. When the dog is older, it will. But right now with a puppy, there's going to need to be a lot of crate, gate, and rotate. Like that's okay. We need to create a series of paintings to reflect. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've already thought about that. It's like, this is what it really looks like. You know those, you know those Pinterest where it's like what the what it looks like before and then what you tried to do? Oh, yeah. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we need for dogs and kids with parents. Like, this sure. is what you think it's going to look like, your dog happily laying under your feet during Thanksgiving dinner. Here's what it really looks like. It's your dog on the table eating the turkey, you know, when you went outside to, like, let your kids go play. So... <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny. Maybe we can. Um, the the author of, or not the author, the illustrator of Emily's book, Sarah Glazier, um, and she she's on Instagram. You, you got if anyone's listening wants to look up her. She has a lot of cool animal stuff. But it's Sarah with an H, Rachel R A C H E L Glazer G L A Z E R. Um, you can look her up on Instagram, but yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll, 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 maybe we'll work with her to get those, to get, to get those paintings. Um, and, uh, I'll make sure to put it, a link to Sarah's, uh, uh, Instagram profile and her stuff. Cause, um, she yeah. was the illustrator of the book and did a really great job. Yeah, um, great. but what, but what, wasn't there another Norman Rockwell painting where like the dog is like ripping the bathing suit yes. off the, yes. right? So, may, so maybe it's more like that one. Endearing. You know, when you look at that, it's endearing. It's endearing because it's it's a painting. But when it's your your puppy pulling your kid's snow pants off and dragging them through the snow, you know, it's like, this isn't cute. This, is, <laughs> this isn't what I wanted. Um, or, or grabbing a glove. That's a huge one. Grabbing a glove and running yeah. off with it or inhaling an Elsa doll. I mean, I can't tell you how many Elsa dolls are identified by dental records, you know, <laughs> The, the next morning, <laughs> but it, you have this idea, but it's not what it really is. So those are the kind of the cons, I think. Yeah, cool. So, so if we think about situations that parents would be in before they they are looking for help, um, there's really two situations. So one is where the child is in the home first, and then you're bringing a new dog into the home. So kind of what you guys were talking about, where you know, again, don't get the dog for the kid. But if you, you know, you want to have a dog and you have a kid and you want to make sure this works well, then, um, you know, that situation um, 
can be great, but that's sort of one situation. And then the second situation is where the dog is in the family first and then the, the child is coming. So, um, so let's start with the situation where the child is home first and a family wants to add a dog. Um, is it better to get so like so this, this is one of the questions I get and I know it depends and I have my own thoughts on this but I'm going to ask you guys since you're my guest but um, is it better to get a puppy or acquire uh, an older dog and if a puppy many people wonder if they should get a dog through a responsible breeder or a rescue um, so do you have advice for families planning on bringing home a new dog with the child already in the household and um, you know does it matter <laughs> Emily you start. <laughs> I was going to say, so lots of, of sort of gray areas, but I think, so the question being, um, you know, puppy or adult, should we, let's start there if a child's already in the home. And I would say that it is more than just the age that we have to pay attention to when we're thinking about getting a dog and what the purpose of that dog is going to be. So let's with puppies, let's just start with puppies. We want to make sure that if the intent is to be a typical family dog, we need to make sure ideally, and if you're going to a breeder, because you want a certain breed, we really want to make sure that that breeder is not raising working dogs. We don't want a working line shepherd or border collie to go into a home with little ones running around. We want to make sure that they're being raised to be pets because there are genetic and behavioral differences. We, even within the same breed, those that are bred for working and those that are bred for pets, there was a study done in labs about that. So you also ideally want to make sure that the breeder is raising the puppy in a home environment, not in a out in the garage or the barn in a kennel so that they are learning hopefully some rules depending on how long they're in the home for with the breeder. The other thing is that with puppies, making sure that they're bred in the home for a pet dog, in an ideal world, gold standard, although this is not always possible, you really would love to be able to know that that breeder has bred that male dog with that female dog, and they've produced a litter or two, and none of those dogs are showing, you know, consistent you know, abnormal behaviors. You sort of want to know that, you know, hey, this this mom and dad create, you know, good puppies, uh, safe puppies. Although with biology, nothing's 100%. And I think people, when they get a puppy, need to realize that this is a living being. Genetics happens. There's no guarantee about anything. So when it comes to that's if with puppies, if you're getting it from a breeder with kids already in the home. With adults, my feeling is, and, and I'm so curious to hear what Helen and has to say and Brian, what you have to say. With adult dogs, the nice thing about adult dogs, and I'm thinking four and a half or older, is that in theory, that we should sort of know who they are at that point. They've passed that wild card time of social maturity. But in order to really know that dog, it would be living in a home with a family. For some reason, that family can't keep a dog. So a family who wants a dog can adopt it, and they're going to have good information about the, what the dog's behavior is really like. Once you put an adult dog in a shelter, 
and then that doll goes into a home, you may or may not getting it, be getting an accurate representation of what the adult dog's going to be like in the home just because the shelter's not a home, not because anyone's doing anything deceitful. It's just a different environment. So if it is a shelter dog, hopefully it's a shelter that has access to foster homes. So again, the foster family can get a clearer picture of what this adult dog is like. So those are my thoughts on sort of the whole puppy adult thing. Breeding, rescue, everyone has different sensibilities. Um, my pets are all adopted and rescued. Um, but, you know, I think what I talked about previously are sort of some broad guiding principles. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see um, exactly what you're talking about. I, I mean, I have dogs I've gotten from breeders. I have dogs in my home that I've rescued. I have dogs I've gotten from puppies and I have dogs that I've rescued as, as seniors or adults. Um, and there's a, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm totally taking when I'm talking about this for what I have in my home, not as the standard, because I know that I have been doing this for 18 years and have a I have an eye of look what I'm looking for. And I also have a, um, a lot more pools to dip into in terms of if there's a dog that needs a home, um, I'm able to do more screening on that dog because I have more connections than the average person looking for a dog is. I think what you were saying, Emily, about looking for puppies and looking for breeders who, um, I mean, I think we could do a whole podcast in and of itself on questions to ask breeders before yeah. getting a, a dog. Ooh, for sure. Um, and I Consider mean, yourself volunteered. <laughs> I'm happy to. But I mean, it's same same with rescues too. But rescues, it's obviously going to be harder to say, have you have you bred this couple, this pair before and why? And um, can I speak to people who have those dogs um, that from a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago? I mean, that's something that I recommend to all of my clients who are looking for a service dog. You know, they're, okay, you found a good breeder ask for references. You want to be talking to people who got a puppy last year, who got a puppy five years ago, and who had a puppy 10 years ago and ask those questions. It's a lot of work, but you're going to have this animal in your home and it has teeth for 10 to 13 years, God willing. So it's worth making this effort now. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of, for families, especially if they have very young children um, going with a puppy, if they do their adequate research and if they don't rush into it with an emotional decision. I mean, one of my, um, I'm, I'm a huge, obviously, proponent of rescue and adopting puppies. My puppy right now, who's six months old, is a shelter puppy. Um, but the problem is, you know, we have this saying, adopt, don't shop. But a lot of people will select dogs based on a pet finder picture that they see and they're scrolling through and it's, it's like shopping, it's online shopping and they see a picture and they automatically connect with it. And they all of a sudden envision this dog with their children. This is what they want. And I say to clients, you know, I'm hundred percent fine with you wanting to rescue a puppy, but you have to be very rational instead of emotional in your selection process. And here's the things that we're going to look for. And here are the questions that we're going to ask. And you have to be comfortable saying it's a very cute puppy, but it's not for us and making that selection before the children are involved. Um, and all of those things. So that's kind of my puppy thing when it comes to adult dogs. Um, you know, I am, I love adopting adult dogs, especially senior dogs for families with children. Um, I think that that depends on the children's education level with dogs. Um, you know, my two have grown up with the sayings, you know, invites prevent bites, face to the face is not the place, dog with a bone, leave them alone from 
the second they can notice dogs. So I feel very comfortable bringing a 13-year-old dog in the home because I know that I'm going to be actively supervising. And if he's uncomfortable, they're going to give him his space. But for families with a two-year-old that has never had a dog before, bringing a senior dog in where they're just going to want to hug and cuddle, mm -hmm. that may not be the right fit. But I do think that there's a great need for some first-time dog families to look into older dogs, adult dogs, senior dogs that through no fault of their own, like Emily was saying, have ended up in a shelter or have ended up needing to find a new home. Someone's died. They've moved, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because the the lack of work, I mean, a 10-year-old dog is so much easier to integrate many times than a two-month-old puppy that you're waking up every, it's like say, having another baby again. And it's wonderful, but it's also, you've got a lot of work. You're going to go through adolescence. You're going to go through all of that stuff. And that's where we see a lot of families just go, I, I can't do this. You know, I've already got four kids. I don't need another one. It, it sounded great at the time. So I think um, it depends is really the great answer to this question, Brian. Um, I, but I'm I'm a I'm a fan of anything as long as it's the right fit and it's the right breed and it's the right temperament. Yeah, and I think my hot take generally is, um, if you're looking for, I I think if you're looking for the safest lowest effort route, it's still going to be work. But I I'm kind of on the I like I like adult dogs better mm -hmm. in general. If you have a really responsible rescue. Like we, we have several like bully project and Rescuezilla and other ones that we work with where they really pick. And then there's other ones I'm sure I'm forgetting, but um, where they, they, they pick dogs who are good pets. Um, right. And they, the dog will usually be in a foster home for 30 days and they're going to, or 30 or 60 days. They're going to know what the behaviors are. And if it's not the right fit, they'll take the dog back. And I think that, you know, that for me is like one, if you can have that situation, I think that can be really, really great. And me personally, if I had a kid right now and I was bringing a dog in, I, I would probably really think about going that route. I think with puppies, I think if you're going to go the puppy route, um, and again, I've seen all these different situations work and not work, but if you're going puppies, I do like breeders who breed for temperament. Um, I just feel like like Emily said, there's a bit of a wild card there because they're going to go through their development. Um, and in our two episodes ago, we talked to talked to Dr. Jessica Heckman and Trish McMillan about behavior and genetics and just like how so much how the environment influences um, so much stuff as they're developing. So you could you, we talked about how you could take the exact same dog and you could clone them. And if you had two parallel universes, if one lived in New York City and one lived on on a farm, you know, after two years, those two dogs could be completely different. You know, they're probably not even really going to be the same dog. So, um, so I think there's more risk with puppies. And so then I think the, the, I think the, there's more of a genetic, uh, component to that, that I think there's where, where, where you, you can lower the risk. Um, um, with that being said, all my dogs are rescues. Um, but I have nothing against, you know, well-bred puppies as well. Um, and I've seen those work out. So I, I think just be smart. And I think especially if you're going to pick a puppy, that's a rescue, which I've seen go very well, um, as well is you want to work with a trainer and you, uh, to help you with the evaluation process. And usually those trainers will have 
good networks in terms of rescues to work with. So that would sort of be um, my advice on that. The one thing I'll, I'll add, Brian, to that too, is to, I always encourage clients to think outside of their aesthetic. So, you know, we have a lot of people that are like, well, I grew up with labs, so in a lab, or I've, I've always wanted a German shepherd, or I've always wanted this kind of dog. And, um, you know, I have, I have collies, my, my two rough collies. I also have a Scottish deer hound. Um, and these are phenomenal family breeds, but you don't see them around very often. They're not in the top list of popular breeds. You know, we've got breeders producing these German, uh, German shepherds, uh, golden retrievers, Labradors, you know, at a very high rate. Um, and that's what people, or doodles. I mean, doodles, we could have, a, again, a whole nother podcast on that. But, you know, um, think outside the aesthetic. Think outside of the dog that you're imagining with your kids. We need to look more temperament for some of these breeds. And um, it may not be the dog that you necessarily are drawn to physically right away, but temperament-wise, they may be much better suited for you in the long run. And that is, I mean, I would just give a very, very brief example. I had a client recently who selected a dog based on a book that their child fell in love with of a, of a picture of a dog. So they looked up that dog, they got one of these, this dog, and it, it didn't go well, you know, um, because it just, they like the aesthetic, not the actual. Was it a beagle? Stuff. <laughs> no. So I'm sitting here listening to everyone's answer, myself included, and I, I'm putting myself in the seat of a listener. And mm -hmm. I think a take home message is if you're considering getting a dog, find someone qualified to help you guide you in the direction of what age, what breed, rescue breeder, because just there's so many factors involved. So many right. factors. Yeah. And I, I've even had people sometimes too, where they were going to go the rescue route and we couldn't find an appropriate dog in, in an amount of time, they end up going to a breeder, which is totally fine. Um, so yeah, so like there's so there's so many variables and you're right, Emily, I think having that guidance, it's really not expensive and it could really, you know, do everything you can to put you on the right track. 100%, you know, 100%. I do all yeah. my dog selections for families for free. There's I, if a family mm. calls me and they're interested in, in getting a dog, I will never, ever charge for stuff like that. And you'd be surprised a lot of trainers are the same way because, you know, I'm more, I know that when they get that dog, they're going to be coming to me for classes, for help, for all of that. I'm more than happy to help make sure that you find the right dog and that I'm able to be a support system for five to six to however many years for you for the lifetime of that dog. Um, so I think there, are, I agree with you, reach out, find somebody that will help. Yeah, cool. Um, great. And then, so the other situation is uh, when you have a dog first and then bringing home a kid. And I think this one's a little bit more, um, I think this is a little bit more complicated sometimes. Um, and you have to start soon. Like as soon as you, like, I, I like when you get those phone calls where, where people know the baby's coming in six or eight months or something like that. Um, cause usually if you wait till a couple of weeks before, you're not going to have the same advantages. So what was, so what are the things that you would recommend, um, you know, the top, you know, hitting kind of like the top two or three sort of things that people can do to get ready to bring a new baby home, um, you know, to their dog. Um, Emily, can I start with this one? Please, please. Yeah. So um, I'm a huge fan and I promote dogs and storks uh, like crazy. I'm, I'm a licensed dogs and storks presenter. I teach at Concord Hospital. Um, I teach all over New Hampshire. I do um, online workshops. So dogs and storks is a program that was created again by Jen Shryock and it's through Family Paws. And it is a specific 
workshop that we teach expectant families um, uh, with dogs that are want to prepare correctly. And there are lots and lots of things. Again, we could have an entire thing on just this subject in itself in selecting uh, or preparing the dog. Um, but I agree with you, Brian, it is a little bit tougher because um, there's a lot more variables that can go into this in terms of you can't select the dog anymore. The dog is already there. So, um, but the sooner you start preparing, the better. Um, you know, the majority of my clients that reach out to me, they either have just found out they're pregnant or they're in that first trimester and they want to they wanna start helping uh, their dog adjust. And I myself am, was that crazy woman who before I even had a baby bump was walking four dogs down the street with an empty stroller. Um, and my neighbors were like, oh, here she goes. She's finally lost it. She's walked. There's no baby in there. <laughs> and, you know, like a year later, there's actually a baby in the stroller. But it's basically about um, the way I explain it to my clients, with what I try to explain, and then I'm sure Emily can fill in these pieces too, is you're, you having a baby or bringing a baby home to your dog looks like a jigsaw puzzle. And the baby is the last piece of the puzzle. We put all of the pieces of the puzzle together first. And if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, if you put all the pieces together except for one, you can at least still get a, the, an idea of what the picture is. So when the baby finally comes home, it completes that picture, but the dog already has an idea of what's coming. And that includes baby equipment, sounds, smells, routine, um, maybe confinement or not being a part of things all the time, um, management training, all of these things that are going to change in the dog's life. You start implementing all these puzzles, so pieces, so that by the time the baby comes home and that one last puzzle piece comes in, it's not a shock to the dog. And that's really what I do with my clients. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, oh, go ahead, Emily. No, I was just gonna say, I love that analogy. I think that is a fantastic analogy, the puzzle piece um, analogy. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and here, a couple of things I, uh, over the years, and, and you guys might disagree with this and that, that, and that that's okay, but I, I'm a, <clears throat> like when I try to simplify things for people before um, the baby comes home, I think, two things that I have found that have generally set people up for success. And if there was some risk with the dog, it lowered the risk while we kind of see what's going on is um, actually three things. So one is um, the first one is having those spaces like the six, I think you guys call them success stations, mm -hmm. I, I believe in the dogs and storks. Like um, I, I remember learning that from there a number of years ago and having people set up like a tether station or an X pen, or if your dog is okay with the crate, having, having one of those success stations set up in like, um, you know, in the living room or some people like to have one in the baby's room as well. I recommend so, every like, room, every room that you and the baby will be in, there should be a success station for the dog. And I love that. And I think that should start ASAP pretty much as soon as you know the baby's coming and they get to spend time in there um, and just get used to that because that gives you a safe way for the baby to be out and observing, but they're not going to be able to rush the baby and be up in the baby's face. So it gives you a really safe way to kind of do those introductions. And especially if your dog's already used to hanging out on there, like for example, if you have it in your living room, like every day for 30 minutes, they go have a Kong while they're on their, on their success station. Just do that like two or three times a week even. Um, 
before the baby's born and then maybe go into the bedroom or the kid's room and read a book and have them hang out on their success station. I really love that. Um, the second thing too, that I'm a pretty big uh, proponent of, I just find it reduces risk because I've seen a lot of bites when they've happened. So many of them are up on the couch in the bed. Um, and so I'm not against a, a dog being up on the couch or the bed and, and you'd have to pro uh, pull or pry my rat terriers from my cold dead hands to get them out of my bed. Um, but um but if you know, if I had um, if I had a new baby coming, I would definitely remove them from the bed or the couch at least for the first three six months until I really sort of kind of see them around the baby. And so I would start that as soon as possible. Where where again, they're not in trouble, but it, they might wear little drag lines around, and I'll, I'll move them off the couch or the bed. They, they can have their own nice bed. Like I I you know we bought one of our dogs before a Casper mattress. So like you can get them a really like a Casper dog bed. Like it can be a really you can get them a really nice bed if it really matters, or it can just be like a blanket. But I think like having. I do think sort of um, not having them at eye level with the kids in the beginning, I think is just something that I've always felt safer um, recommending that. And I would say the third thing is, and this is more for P if you're at all in sort of the, where you're really unsure about your dog, like may maybe your dog has shown some signs towards kids in the past and those types of things. A, you want to reach out to a professional right away. Um, and we'll have resources on where you can do that. But I'm also a big fan of muzzle training. And that doesn't mean we're just gonna like put a muzzle on and let the dog run around with the kid. But it does mean that in case things break down or if things seem safe and you wanna, you wanna, you know, move into further exercises, but kind of have a safety net, having a dog who enjoys wearing a muzzle, um, I think is really a really, really smart thing to do. Um, and, but I just wanna caveat that is that if you really think your dog really needs a muzzle around a kid, you definitely need to work with a professional on that. But um, I think in some of these situations, that's the most underused tool um, in some of these situations, especially where if the dog is a little bit iffy. Um, so those were kind of the three things that I wanted to throw out there. I don't know if you guys agree with those or disagree with those. Yeah, I, I'm a huge proponent of carrying a doll as well. I also recommend all clients go out and buy a doll or wrap a pillow up in something and work on what your body language is going to look like now to your dog, passing that doll back and forth to your spouse, putting that doll on the floor. Does your dog get uh, really aroused by that? Do you, once you set up all the equipment is and the swing is going, does your dog get really anxious or concerned? You know, these are the kinds of things that you want to know before the baby comes home. So that also helps Brian know, am I going to need to condition my dog to something like this? Is he going to jump up and try to, you know, so I, I think that that's a great point. Yeah. I'm so envious you have your clients reaching out to you so early on. I'm typically seeing them when the baby's due in two weeks. Yes. Um, oh, I have that too. <laughs> Definitely. So, but, but, so I agree, hands down, dog coping with management and solid skill sets, sit down, stay awake, go to place. These are mm -hmm. some basics that I tend to have to focus on because the baby's due so quickly. Um, and then we talk about acclimation to sounds and the baby and all that stuff. Some of the tangential things that I think is really important for families to consider, and I'm just sort of drawing on my own experience here uh, as well, is we don't know how the birthing process is going to go and how the recovery physically or mentally is going to go for the mom. And so some things to think about are do you need, if you're always the one walking your dog when you have a newborn, even if everything's perfect, you're exhausted, you're sleep deprived, you're healing um, from a traumatic physical event um, that is not normal. <laughs> I think it's very sci-fi to deliver a baby. Uh, but, you know, you may want to hire a dog walker for the first month or two that you're recovering. Or if you're 
having to heal longer than normal. Also for the first few days, if you anticipate having a load of family coming to see and visit and your dog goes crazy with visitors and there are other issues maybe the dog has, you may want to board the dog for a few days just to get past that very emotional um, and tiring time. So I, I love yeah. boarding. I'm a huge um, Me too. recommendation of boarding. Um, so I think that's great, Emily. Yeah, we get that a lot and it works way better that way, especially if you have a dog who's already on, you know, may maybe they're a little bit more on the anxious side to begin with. Um, it, piling on sort of that additional stress is usually not the best way to go. Um, yeah, so that's great. I, I totally forgot about that, but that's that's really important. Brian, can I just uh, mention about the introductions for dog and baby that we talk a little bit about um, or just bust a myth? Yeah, because I was actually going to move into stuff um, inter um stuff that we can do like with kids and dogs, like good, you know, some, some relationship building stuff. So that's, that's kind of a good segue. So why, why don't you start with that? Well, I just was going to mention, you know, um, the, the introduction to the dog and the baby is one of the biggest questions I get. How do we introduce the dog to the baby? So whether I get a call from someone who's due in two weeks or whether I'm working with a client from the time they find out they're pregnant all the way up until the, the baby is born, we end up with our last consult a few weeks before the birth or maybe two weeks or whatever talking about, okay, when baby comes home, this is what has to happen. And um, there's these myths that you come in and you give the dog a the blanket to smell, or you bring a hat home from the hospital and all of this stuff. And um, it's not what we recommend. It is not something that you need to do or even really should do. I give the example to clients that, you know, you don't have your uncle mail you a t-shirt or stand outside the house before he comes in, give it to your dogs to smell. And then you go, okay, well, they smelled it. He's okay to come in now. It creates a very false sense of security because if the dog smells the blanket, then he's fine. You think, oh, then he's fine. He's technically met the baby. Um, and there is no Lion King moment. There's no moment where you come home from the hospital and you take your baby out and you show your dogs, look what we did, guys. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, there's none of that. You know, the the goal is if you've done enough preparation work, or even if your dog's been boarding, that you come home and you just get on with life. You can sit down, you greet your dogs, you say, hi, guys, I know I've been gone, I might smell a little different. And then you just get on with things. There is no, you know, the dog needs to meet the baby. This is how the introduction goes. And it, it, it definitely is the biggest support. It has to go to the mom. If the mom is not ready yet to have, you know, if you have multiple dog households, one dog, she might be comfortable meeting the baby. The other two dogs, maybe not yet, maybe not for three or four weeks. And that might be where they have to have a support system in place with a trainer or a professional where they can call and say, okay, I think I'm ready. How do I go about this actual introduction? And we're huge. Um, we push for swivel chairs so that you can swivel and move away if you need to, if the dog is on leash or on a tether. Um, never doing head to nose first. You never let the dog smell the baby's head. Um, this is where sometimes I do allow the dog to get up on the couch and do a little bit of smelling and that kind of thing. But, you know, there is no specific, this is how you do an introduction. And I really wanted to make sure that people and viewers or listeners here are listening to that, that there is no, you bring the blanket home, the dog smells it, then you bring the baby home, you let the dog smell the baby, and it's all said and done and we're over. Um, there's a lot more that can go into it that can actually make or break the success, I think, especially in those first few weeks. So. so that's interesting. And it's so interesting to hear different people's perspectives. Because <clears throat> um, I never thought <clears throat> of 
if somebody brings home a hat or a blanket and the dog smells it and doesn't have a negative reaction that those people would then assume it's great, you know? So I, I, it's interesting. So you're, you're looking at an introduction as in sort of the whole entire process versus that concrete, the parents are coming home at some point, they're going to want their dog to sniff the child. And how can we do that safely? So I do recommend actually that people bring home a hat or a dirty diaper for the dog to smell for the specific reason, not to make sure it goes okay. But if that dog growls or snarls at the smell, I am going to have a much more heightened sense that we need to be careful. Mm. So I'm not, uh, you can get a lot of false positives, but I'm doing it more. Let's just make sure there's nothing negative. If there's not, it doesn't mean it's all good, but I'd like to know that now before. So that's, that's just interesting. Interesting. And then, yeah, I think again, like I said, I've, I've, and I've had that happen where a parent, a parent will bring home something and they're holding the blanket out to the dog or they're yeah. holding, and the dog may back up and growl. Cause they're like, what are you putting in my face? And they have that negative reaction. And then the parents get very, very concerned very quickly. And it may, it, it, again, it's, we're looking at, my goal is always to have all the pieces of the puzzle in place uh -huh. so that when that last piece comes, there is no need for the scent stuff because it's already been out. You know, it's the, all of that has been in place prior. Yeah. But it, it I, the dog may, it, you know, I certainly would recommend people, you know, shove a diaper or hat in their face. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so I'm really trying to look for a negative reaction to a scent, which by the way, I rarely ever see but I still ask people to do it, right or wrong. I still ask people to do it. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you're absolutely right, the introduction process, it is a process. But I, I, the advice I give when people actually ask about, I mean, there's how do I let my dog sniff my baby? Like, how? And I, like you, say avoid nose to mouth. They're going to have a blanket wrapped around them and a diaper around their tush. Let them snip, sniff the tush at that concrete moment. Not that that denotes a whole introduction process. Right. And, and the swivel. And, and I always, my mentor taught me have the mom hold if she's healthy because of maternal instinct to right. <laughs> easy. Um, and I use a swivel chair with wheels for consults for just that reason. So I can exactly quickly if I need to. Right. Exactly. So do I. And that and people love that. They're like, oh my God, we can bring the office chair in. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love, uh, I think you, uh, well, I know Helen, I know you, you know, Ruth Chrysler. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you do, Emily. We, she's actually on our last episode uh, with Sarah Frazier. Um, but I, when I talked to her about this, I always remember her, she talked about the Lion King moment, but she said like, you don't need to present your baby for approval, yes, right? Exactly. So there, there, there's no rush to do that. And I, I always like the way of thinking about that. And I think, and for me too, I think over the years, I don't even want to rush that. Like if that takes a couple of weeks before that feels natural and safe, then do that. Like just, they, they can be in the same room, the same vicinity or whatever. There's no rush to, to jump to that point. And I think that, um, I think that's important too, is that in addition to, again, no, no nose to face, you know, kind of the, 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 the bummer, the feet kind of like, you know, where the you swaddle know, where is safer. huge too. Like what Emily was saying is in the blanket because babies yeah. can have the startle reflex where their hands or their feet will, mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a natural, it's a, it's a, 
very, very long passed on uh, reflex that we have to grab onto a tree or to our mother when we're startled um, is from right from primates, but it is um, it can definitely startle a dog. And so if a dog, if baby is naked or in a blanket and the dog's cold nose hits the baby's foot and suddenly the baby startles out, it kicks the dog in the nose or the dog goes, what was that? It can be a very quick negative reaction. So we're always saying swaddle and feet first, just quick smell. There you go. Nice job. Okay. Off you go. Go back to your mat, go back to your Kong, whatever it is and get on with things. So, so next, just kind of quickly before we get into uh, just where, where you can find the book and, and also in, into Helen's uh, resources in case people want to look her up. Uh, do you guys have like, you know, once, once kids, like at what age do you feel like it's possible to start having the dogs into like interact with the dog or sorry, the kids interact with the dogs in a, in a training fashion? So, um, like how young can you actually start incorporating training, uh, with the kid? So just like what age is it, does it, is it appropriate? And what, like, what are your favorite exercises to kind of get people started? Well, for me, it's since birth. As soon as the baby's born, you could be integrating the dog and the baby. I have pictures of me wearing my dog, my baby, not wearing my dog. I mean, I've done that too, but wearing my baby while training my dogs. Um, I have clients. I tell, we tell everybody that we are completely family friendly. You can be bringing your kids. If you've got a two-year-old, you bring your kids. It's totally fine. You can bring a stroller into the facility. Um, you know, we have kids sections set up. We want to involve kids as much as possible in the training aspect um, and helping parents learn. I think that involvement is absolute involvement and inclusion from day one um, is really important as well as talking verbiage. You know, that's why what you were saying earlier, Brian, about having those dog zones, the safety zones and the um, success stations, because as soon as the baby is able to notice the dog, you can start talking about that, you know, oh, that's a dog zone, we leave them alone, or, you know, face to face is not the place. And we start talking about these things the same way we would a hot stove or a, mm -hmm. um, a fire, you know, or mm -hmm. like Emily was saying earlier, a busy road. Um, so I'm, I'm a proponent of from birth, we have a kids and canines class that we start with kids coming and actually training their family dog from age five plus. Uh, one of my other head trainers is a preschool teacher as well. So she absolutely loves uh, working with the kids and she loves working with the dogs. And, um, you know, we have a parent accompany them and we have certain rules. We certainly have a much smaller class size for those kinds of classes, but the sooner the better. I'm, that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, so I see it's almost like we have two different topics here. Like how do you, there's the whole acclimating the child and the dog when from a baby on. And then we have the actual act of the kid sort of taking direction and, and training the dog, so to speak. And I think for me, it's just absolutely all the inclusion stuff from when the everything Helen said. I think for me, some of the just the guiding principles that I've almost had to learn in reverse because of dog bite stuff. And I'd be curious to hear what you guys think of this. The biggest thing that I want little kids to learn is that if they're going to be engaging with a game or anything with the dog, an adult has to be present. Mm -hmm. They can't be doing that alone. That's what I want the child to learn. And some of the errors that I've seen, um, or I should say, you know, I've learned from these families when things haven't gone right, is I've become very wary. I do not like um, the whole method of giving your child a whole cup of treats 
and letting the dog and child walk around and give treats to the dog without supervision, because we cannot just focus on what the dog is learning. We have to think about what the child is learning and what we're inevitably teaching that child is food, dog, unsupervised, okay. Because I'm sure, I know you guys have seen this, I've seen this, the kids walking around with their Cheerios and their little cup falls on the ground. They just innocently go to pick it up the same time the dog does and that's when a bite can happen. So for me, sort of just broad principles are the child has to learn, especially the younger the child, it has to be with mommy or daddy or whatever guardian is there. Um, and to stay away from that, just let the child feed the dog endlessly. Those are sort of the two broad principles. And then I think as far as is the children and age training, uh, I agree with what Helen said. I think one of the, the it depends things has to do with the child and how mature they are or what do they have any neurodivergent issues that we have to, uh, you know, figure out with all of this. So every a lot of parents know sort of how mature their child is too. So I always just engage the parent and what they think the child's able to do as well. Yeah, I think building off that supervision, I mean, we talk about five major parts of supervision, but the top three are oh, yeah. um, inactive supervision, passive supervision, and active supervision. Yeah. And when we're talking about training and interacting with kids and dogs, it's it's strictly active supervision. If you're not able to actively supervise, then the dog is either put away or you can put the child in a crate, although that's kind of frowned upon. But you can, you know, there has to be this active supervision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you're passively supervising, I mean, passive supervising is you're sitting in the living room with your dog and your kid. And like you were saying, Emily, the child's eating Cheerios and you're just looking at your phone. You're reading the the news or you're Facebooking or you're taking a break, but you're, and you can quote unquote say, I was in the room but you weren't actively supervising. Yeah. And active supervision is the safest mm -hmm. way that dogs and children and parents should all be interacting with each other. It's that passive supervision or that inactive supervision that we see those things happen. We, we weren't paying attention. We were stirring the pot of soup on the stove yeah. and our dogs and kids were in the same room and we turn around and something's happened, but we don't know why because we weren't actively watching. I think that is one of the most important points to drive home to parents. Absolutely. Because we know most bites happen under parental supervision. Right. Because it's that passive supervision. Active supervision is absolutely key. Great. Okay. Well, um, before we just talk about your, your book, Emily, um, Helen, can you tell people if they want to learn more about you? I'm assuming you're, you're doing virtual lessons in the midst of all this as we can. Yes, um, yes I'm doing all Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, if people want to, to get a hold of you or if you have any, uh, like your website or whatever, how do people find out about you? Um, so my website is nomonkeybusinessdogtraining.com. Um, I have a whole page on there on um, the, our dogs and kids stuff that we do, the safety. I also put on my workshops, you can see where I teach all at Concord Hospital locally. Uh, but now I'm doing, I'm actually this Sunday, I'm doing a um, online workshop on kid and dog safety games to play. And now that uh, nice. New Hampshire has canceled uh, school, not canceled, but remote learning, basically they've canceled it. Okay, it's on my shoulders. Um, and I'm going to be giving parents some structured fun games to be playing with their kids and their dogs oh, so that cool. during recess, so I'm doing a full Zoom workshop there. And then my Facebook page, No Monkey Business Dog Training. Again, if you just type in monkey dog Helen on Google, <laughs> you'll find me. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's where I am. Um, so yeah, that. That's where. That's how you can find me if you have any questions. Awesome. And uh, and then Emily, I guess um, 
you know, tell us where people can find you in terms of your website. Cause, uh, I know you're, you know, your, your veterinary behavior so can help people with this. And then also tell us a bit about your book, which I believe is going to be available on Amazon, uh, very, very shortly. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, tell us. so the, the, the website is animalbehaviorclinicnj.com. And the book, I'm so excited, Helen. I'm so glad you liked it. Um, I love it. I was waiting for your response. The book is, it will hopefully in about two or four weeks be available online on Amazon um, as an ebook, a paperback, and a hardback book. And it really came, you know, from my desire to have a resource to teach my kid how to be safe around dogs and how, and, and to let them teach kids that dogs have emotions and that's what drives behavior. And that's really important and that it's okay for them to have emotions and not like certain things. And I remember just being, think, you know, being on a plane with my husband and daughter going to visit my parents out in Colorado. And I'm like, I'm just going to have to write something for my daughter. And so I just started writing it on the plane. I was reading those verses to her for years. Um, and now I'm so excited that we have this beautiful book with illustrations. And I'm just really hoping it helps to continue the conversation of safety culture around dogs. It's just another resource. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. And I'm looking forward to to owners getting that. And uh, yeah, it will be available on Amazon. Like you said, uh, we'll definitely do a, um, a post out to our, uh, to people who follow instinct dog training. And also um, for people who want to be updated, uh, dog lab underscore podcast on Twitter, um, we'll definitely do it there. And if anyone just wants to, to stay on top of when it is going to be available, I'll, I'll, I'll also put in the resource notes um, an email um, so I think I'll, I'll put your email, Emily. So if anyone wants to be notified as soon as it's available, then we can uh, do an email blast to those people because it's um, going to oh. be really great. And then I believe you're also having a free um, online dog training course on Instinct's online school for free to accompany the book as well, right? Yeah. So obviously the book is, is for young children. Um, and so for any adult who wants to learn more, in the spirit, again, of just trying to disseminate this information, we're just doing a free online course that anybody can take to learn a little bit more about the why dogs bite, what I can do, how, what do I need to look for, that type of stuff. That's awesome. Cool. I, I love, I know it's for little kids, Emily, but when I read these books, I was reading it as a parent. And I read it as if I was giving this to a client who was expecting a ba uh, expecting a baby or that I'm giving to after. And that's, I know that the message is obviously to get to the kids, but in order to get to the kids, we've got to get to the parents. Exactly. And that was what I really loved about the book. I was like, Oh, thank God. This is going to be something that parents are going to um, hopefully God willing latch onto and say, Oh, wow. I didn't think. And then they're, and the illustrations are bright and they're colorful and they're really nicely done. I, I really, um, I think it's great, Emily, and um, we're all in this fight together. I, sure. And I know it's not, it's not necessarily a fight, but it's a, it's, it's a struggle. Okay. Um, <laughs> a, so campaign, I, I think, a campaign, right, to we're raise in this campaign together. Um, so, you know, because in the end, in the end, none of us want to see kids get hurt. None of us want to see um, parents struggling the way that they go, the, what they go through. And I do want to say this too, especially in re relation to the book. 
no parent wants their child to get bitten. And that is the most important thing when I see people with a, you know, dog bit their child. And they're all, well, that parent should have known better. Well, no parent wants to see their their dog bite their child. And then, and that's something that we have to have empathy for. They don't know until they know. And I think books like yours, Emily, are really going to help spread that prior to these kinds of conversations that we have to have. So I, I'm, I'm really thrilled for it, Emily. I can't wait. I'll be passing it out like candy. Thank you. I'm excited to hopefully, hopefully it has an effect. <laughs> cool. And then our last question to wrap things up, this is for all every guest. Um, and it doesn't have to be related to this topic. Um, but if you could offer one piece of advice for dog owners based on all of your experience and everything you learned, if you had to just say one thing to uh, dog owners out there, what would that be? Get qualified help. Get people <laughs> to help you who have the right qualifications and the right knowledge and skill set. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yours is really good, Emily. Mine was going to be feed cheese. <laughs> just <laughs> don't don't be afraid to use food. You know, this this pay your dog for good choices, yes. and mm -hmm. don't be afraid to use use cheese and and make it make it fun. That that was I think yours was much more like yeah, right right more qualified. Mine is like oh, just feed your dog, we'll be okay. That it, no, that's great. It, I can't. I can't wait someday to like to stitch all these together. Like after we get like 15 or 20 episodes, because yes. there's like just such good answers that come out of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, that's great guys. Well, thank you very much for doing this and doing this um, in the middle of everything we're dealing with. I'm sure people will appreciate it and uh, maybe we'll have you back again someday. Thanks guys so much for having me. Thank you. This was fun. I really enjoyed it.